All right, listen up, everyone. I want you to calmly file towards the exits. That's it, that's it. Nobody run, just walk. Single file, that's it. Now, if we just stay calm, no one's gonna be harmed by the huge bomb that's gonna explode any minute. <laughs> It's a cookbook! It's a cookbook! You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. It's a cookbook. A few episodes ago when we discussed Kick the Can, we pondered whether a show that wears its message so obviously on its sleeve had any other aspects to it. Thankfully, we found that it did. When we come to tonight's Twilight Zone, we ask a similar question. If an episode is so heavily identified with its twist ending, that the actual wording of that twist ending enters the public consciousness and becomes shorthand for twist endings themselves or sudden outbreaks of panic, then ultimately, is there anything left to discover? When the episode has been parodied to the point that even its star Lloyd Bochner poked fun at it in the Naked Gun 2.5, is there any power to that ending anymore? When it was first aired, was tonight's show so successful in shocking its audience that you could almost describe it as too successful? Because as soon as we hear the title of that episode, we immediately think of its most famous line. It's a cookbook. Mr. Chambers, Mr. Chambers, it is the meal time. Kindly state your preference, please. Mr. Chambers, it is the meal time. Kindly state your preference. Meet Michael Chambers. He's lay in a clean room. He's offered food. He can even smoke. But from his demeanor, we can clearly see that he's being held against his will. But who by? And what for? So we all know how it ends. But let's find out what it means to serve man. This is the way nightmares begin, or perhaps end. Very simple, direct, unadorned. Let's just hold on a moment, because that's not quite the opening narration that we're used to. But okay, let's see where it takes us. Incredible, and yet so terribly real that even while they're happening, we live with them and digest them and assimilate them. And if it's 12 o'clock noon, that's what you preoccupy yourself with. You don't think about 12 o'clock noon on the next day, or the day after that. But that's what we should have been thinking about. Tomorrow, and the day after tomorrow. We were preoccupied with the hands on a clock, when we should have been checking off a calendar. So while Michael Chambers narrates for us, we get some stock footage scenes of New York, which are 
quite obviously stock footage. But how wonderful to see the great city in this way, circa the 50s or early 60s, depending on when that footage was shot. You know, the look of this period in the US had a class all of its own, and some people might poke fun at this sort of obvious use of stock footage, but as a lover of Americana, I just really adore these shots. And we also get a shot of a shaky flying saucer streaking across the sky. Now there is some flying saucer footage later on that is taken from movies of the time which we'll get to, but this first shot, I can't actually find where it comes from, but I'm sure it's going to be from some 50s or early 60s flying saucer movie. Now if you listen to the short story from the last episode, you'll notice that this staging of Michael Chambers in the spaceship is a completely new invention of the show, and we'll talk more about that later on. But for now we come to the United Nations, which does bring us more in line with the approach of the short story. And we get this great scene where a Kanamit walks into the room to the shock of everyone present. And I really like the way they stage this, you know, the reactions of everyone. We see that before we see the actual Kanamit itself. And then we see the shadow. So I think they really build up well the kind of awe that we're supposed to feel at seeing this thing. So in this television adaptation of To Save Man, it's a full 5 minutes and 47 seconds of its 25 minute runtime that we finally get to our proper opening narration. Respectfully submitted for your perusal, a canimate. Height a little over 9 feet, weight in the neighborhood of 350 pounds. Origin unknown. Motives? Therein hangs the tale. For in just a moment, we're going to ask you to shake hands figuratively with a Christopher Columbus from another galaxy and another time. This is The Twilight Zone. First broadcast on March 2nd, 1962. Written by Rod Serling and based on a short story by Damon Knight. And directed by Richard L. Baer. So Sailing's open narration, pretty short, but I like it, it's kind of snappy and there are a few wonderful Sailing-isms in it. Things like we'll ask you to shake hands with a Christopher Columbus and so on. But there's not much more to say on it, so we'll leave it there. And our director this week is Richard L. Bear, who we have encountered before and has a pretty great record when it comes to directing good Twilight Zones. Third from the Sun, The Purple Testament, Nick of Time, The Prime Mover are all great episodes, and after To Save Man, he'll also direct the next episode, which is called The Fugitive, and then a couple of years later, he directs one called What's in the Box. So this script itself is written by Rod Serling, but based on Damon Knight's story that was written in 1951, and Damon Knight did correspond with Rod Serling over a couple of years and submitted several proposals for Twilight Zone episodes, but this is the only one that was ever used. And in the Twilight Zone companion, Damon Knight says, To Save Man was written in 1950, when I was living in Greenwich Village, and my unhappy first marriage was breaking up. I wrote it in one afternoon, while my wife was out with another man. 
Now, clearly, if you've listened to the last episode and watched the show, you will realize that there are some differences. But also in the Twilight Zone companion, Damon Knight seemed to be quite happy with them. He said, I thought the adaptation was kind of neat. It made me famous in Milford, Pennsylvania. Suddenly everyone knew who I was. I didn't mind the aliens being giants, because I knew they couldn't film my pig people without making it look like a Disney film. The only thing that bugged me was Sailing's treating the alien language as if it were just another kind of code. And we'll come back to that point a little later on too. So like I said, we have a narration by our main character, we have an exposition scene in the UN, and then we have Rod Sailing's opening narration as well. So there seems to be a real effort to spell things out to the audience here in what now seems like quite a simple story. All we need to know at this point is that the Canamits have come down and we don't know what their intentions are. So this does seem to be a bit like overkill to me, to lay it on as much as they do. And that's not an episode killer in itself because there's nothing wrong with the scenes themselves or the narration itself, but it does seem to be laying it on a bit thick for what is actually quite a simple story. Ladies and gentlemen of the earth, we greet you in peace and friendship. We come from a planet far beyond this galaxy, a planet far more developed than Earth, but we come as friends. Although we know your language, our own methods of communication are mental rather than verbal. Hence, the voice you hear me speaking with is totally mechanical. Our intentions are honorable. We desire above all things to help the people of Earth, to establish embassies here, and in the near future to set up reciprocal visits between Earth people and Canamits. So here is a Canamit. And if you recall the short story, in the singular, the aliens were a Canama, and plural was Canamit. But on the show, the singular is a Canamit, and the plural is Canamits. So why the change? You know, who knows? But in the scene we've just heard, the Canamit said that their voice was completely mechanical, which sort of ties in with how it did end up being portrayed in a way, because clearly this isn't the actor, Richard Keel, speaking those lines. So maybe let's take a moment to meet the man in the makeup. Whether it's a book cover, a poster, or anything where there is a combination of Twilight Zone images. One of the things that is more often than not there is an image of the Canamit, the towering alien with the sunken eyes and the bulbous head, played by the wonderful Richard Keel. Now Richard Keel was born in 1939 and his great size was due to a hormonal condition called acromelagy and prior to acting he had a number of jobs including nightclub bouncer and cemetery plot salesman. And he did continue to work regular jobs as he began his acting career. His first listed role on IMDb is of Ugly Marine in a film called The D.I. And this appearance in The Twilight Zone is only his ninth listed role. When more acting roles came his way he was often cast as villains because of his imposing size. But this also meant he would often be cast in 
some of the more outlandish villain roles like in shows like Kolchak the Night Stalker where he played two different monsters and of course we'll never forget him as Jaws from the James Bond movies The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. Now one piece of trivia that has surfaced over the years is that he was originally cast as the Incredible Hulk in the pilot for the Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrino TV series but it didn't take long during filming for him to be recast when the powers that be decided they wanted a more muscular Hulk rather than just being tall like Richard Keel was. But in this case he was more than happy to step aside because he didn't like the contact lenses and the green paint which he had to endure during filming. In unlocking the door to a television classic Martin Grams Jr. documents an interview with him where he says I got a call from Herman about doing the Twilight Zone. Arch Hall was very nice about it having been an actor himself and shot around me during the week it took me to do what turned out to be one of the classic episodes titled To Serve Man. So clearly the depiction of the Kanamit in this is different from what is in Damon Knight's original story where they were these little pig-like creatures. But you can see why they would make that change because with Keel's great size that's half the job done in terms of creating something fantastical for the audience to marvel at and then you add some makeup and you have your alien. And clearly early on they didn't know how they were going to do this and Rod Serling said at the moment no one knows whether we cast this part or make it. And his original description in the script was while humanoid in general appearance it is almost as if someone had been sculpturing it and had left the job prematurely. It has two eyes very wide apart, a small opening that passes for a nose and a tiny almost imperceptible circular hole that passes for a mouth. So clearly those things didn't actually get done. But the makeup itself that was done was by makeup maestro William Tuttle who we perhaps remember most in the Twilight Zone for his creation in Eye of the Beholder but he was a regular Twilight Zone contributor. Now in the days of high definition Blu-ray the Canamit makeup in the close-up shots does unfortunately show the joins but you know that's fine I think none of us will really come down on it because of that because it never would have been an issue on the initial television broadcast with the definition of televisions at that time. So Keel himself, is he any good in it? Well to be honest he's been given a bit of a bum deal in some of the scenes because even when there's talking to be done, because of how the Kanamit are depicted with this disembodied voice, he just kinda has to sit there with his head held to the side staring blankly into space and it's his sheer size and the makeup that make the Kanamit so memorable. Later on he does get a couple of scenes where he can do a bit more but you know it is what it is and that's how it was written and I think he does a good job with what he has. But unfortunately for him although he did record the original dialogue that's not what was used in the end. The person who did do the voice was an actor called Joseph Ruskin and we have met him before in the episode The Man in the Bottle and that is bit of a flawed episode I think but he himself in it is great, he's got a lot of charisma 
and he does have a wonderful voice so I can't really complain about what he brings to it. Obviously though Richard Keel would be disappointed by this and in his autobiography making it big in the movies Richard Keel writes I had been told by MGM that the producers had the right to use someone else to dub in my lines and that they probably would do that. I remember driving in directly from Palm Springs and reporting to MGM for hours and hours of makeup before beginning the long day of shooting. I was so tired from driving right from one job to another and going through hours of brutal makeup that when they gave me a chance to do the lines myself, I was not prepared and did not do a very good job when I read the lines of the Canamit. Ultimately, they did use someone else to dub the voice of the Canamit, and I wasn't surprised, just disappointed in myself. So when we return to the adaptation, while there are some differences from the short story, the underlying question is the same. Senor Valdez of Argentina is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Senor, could you please inform us precisely why have you chosen this planet for your visit? It has come to our attention that Earth has been plagued by both natural and unnatural catastrophes, all of which could easily be acted upon and prevented. We are here to help you. Recognizing Dr. Denis Levesque, the representative of France. Uh, Monsieur, my government wishes me to ask you the, the nature of your health. What forms will it take? Indeed, if we should prefer not to avail ourselves of the various aids that you mentioned, your reply would be what? We will not force anything on you. You will take only that which you choose to take. For example, tomorrow we will demonstrate to all interested parties a new and extremely interesting power source, which is atomic in nature, and which can supply a form of electric power for entire countries for the cost of a few dollars. It's extremely economical. So why are they here? Are they as altruistic as they say? And why did he just leave his cookbook there for everyone to look at? We'll come back to that in a second. But as the episode continues, we'll get our continuing narration from Michael Chambers. It was the age of Santa Claus. Only these Kris Kringles came without white whiskers and rosy cheeks and twinkling eyes. They were nine feet tall enigmas who descended on us like locusts. But nobody was counting or worrying. Except perhaps a few professionals whose job it was to second guess. In a sense, I was one of these. A decoding specialist for the United States government. And this is where I got into the act. Well, Chambers, what have you got? Uh, a corker of a migraine headache. An eye strain. You can't lick it? No, not in eight hours, I can't. Colonel, it took us almost a year to crack the Japanese code. We had an army of men working on that. But this is a language of people from outer space, probably 500 times as intelligent as we are and a thousand times more complex. You need more help. All donations gratefully accepted. So luckily, Chambers is a decoding specialist for the government and he sets about trying to decode the book. And here's where the episode does come under some criticism from some quarters. First of all, 
the Canamit has just left his cookbook there, quite on purpose, for seemingly no reason at all. Whereas in the short story, it was acquired, and it was never meant to be in the hands of the humans at all. Later on in the episode, Michael Chambers even comments on how unconcerned the Canamit are that it's there. So you could say that they didn't think the humans would ever crack the code, but then why put it there at all? You know, it's just never really clear. And the second point of criticism is that in the episode, Chambers has no Rosetta Stone, no small piece of translated text that he can use as a starting point to then work outwards and decipher the text. Whereas in the short story, they did have some examples to work from, so deciphering an alien language in these circumstances would be impossible. But as Mark Zickri points out in the Twilight Zone Companion, the original story has a flaw too. It relies on the fact that the Canamit language would also have a double meaning for the word serve. You know, certainly each world, the Canamit and the human world, would have a word meaning to serve food, and you could conceivably match that up. But would that alien planet from light years away also use the same word to describe being in service to someone? Damon Knight in the Twilight Zone Companion explained it this way. He said, I tried to cover myself by having the narrator's friend remark that some of the idioms were very much like English. In fact, French and Italian have the same double meaning and in German and Swedish, the word is almost the same, but I didn't know that then. So while he sits and tries to crack the Canamit language, why don't we meet our leading man, Lloyd Bochner, who played Michael Chambers. He was born in 1924 in Toronto, Canada, and apart from an interruption when he served in the Royal Canadian Navy, it seemed like he was always destined to be a performer. Even by the age of 11, he was doing voice work on radio. And when he was older, he moved to New York to pursue his acting career. And although he was working steadily through the 1950s, it was in 1960 that he got his big break in a show called Hong Kong, where he played a British chief inspector called Neil Campbell, opposite Twilight Zone star Rod Taylor, who played a reporter. So, he was a Canadian actor, but his voice and his delivery meant that he could be quite easy to accept as British or American, depending on the role. And when his career gets moving, he just keeps on going and going. He was a very prolific actor, and I think we'll have all seen him in several things. He'd often go back and guest star in the same shows, playing different characters, like he did in Mission Impossible, where he played three different roles. And as we heard at the beginning of the episode, in the movie The Naked Gun Two and a Half, he actually sends up this episode to save man. And of being in this, he said, The Twilight Zone was a very special moment in my life. I knew Rod Serling, he lived only three doors from me when we came to Los Angeles, and I grew to know him and respect him, and admire him enormously, and really seek out his company. He was a dynamic, imaginative, inventive, skillful writer, and the great tragedy was he left us too early in his life. There was so much he did, and so much he promised to do. 
The making of To Save Man was really an adventure. I had never met Richard Keel before, he was tall and intimidating. We had a number of good actors with us. The interesting thing about getting to do The Twilight Zone and living through that glorious golden age of television, we lived with a hope and desire that this new art form was going to blossom into something very meaningful. And when we came to Hollywood, there was a further promise that this was going to be something to be really desired, that we were lucky to be part of. As I look back on it, we were lucky to be part of it, but so much of it seems to have disappeared. We are now living in the age of cruelty, crudity, violence, which is reflected in many ways in our society as well. I regret that, because I think that the promise has disappeared. I don't mean to be pessimistic, I don't mean to be down, but I think those were better days for so many of us. I think there's a reason why Lloyd Bochner was always working, and that's just because he's just straight up a good actor. You know, the camera loves him, he's got a wonderful voice, and he'd be a safe pair of hands whatever you put him in. And I do think he's very good in this, and as we hear in the episode, he carries on that belief in the Canemit that the main character has in the short story. For the most part, he believes that they're here to do good. And that is seemingly proven when they finally somehow manage to work out the title of the book. We've licked the title anyway. What does it say? How much does it tell us? Here it is. Well, that makes the cheese a little more binding, wouldn't you say, Colonel? Mm. I'd call that a reasonably altruistic phrase. Do you agree, Patty? Well, I, uh, well, I want to believe it, but I don't know what to think. To serve man, I hope so. I fervently hope so. So, is the cheese a little more binding as they think? Whatever that means, let's find out. Sailing transplants the lie detector scene from the first half of the short story to the second half of the episode, and as a crowd of stock footage delegates look on, a canimit is put to the test in the same way. I shall ask our distinguished guest to reply to the question put at the last session by several of the delegates. Namely, what is the motive of the Canemit people in offering such great gifts to the people of the Earth? Now, I hope that the people of Earth will understand and believe when I tell you that our mission upon this planet is simply this to bring to you the peace and plenty which we ourselves enjoy and which we have in the past brought to other races throughout the galaxy. So that speech is taken wholesale from the short story and so are the results that the Canemit achieve on Earth. No hunger, no wars, and Michael Chambers can sit and play with string in his office because there's not much more to do. But of course, then comes the revelation. This is flight number 914 from Earth to our planet. We will be taking off in three minutes. Mr. Chambers! Mr. Chambers! Don't get on that ship! The rest of the book, to serve men, it's... it's a cookbook! 
So what a perfect Twilight Zone ending that is, except it's not the ending. As we saw at the beginning of the episode, we see Michael Chambers on the spaceship, so we know what happens to him. And now after he hears that it's a cookbook, he's bundled into the flying saucer, and the stop motion spaceship from when the Earth stood still flies away. Now I happen to think that one of the great aspects of Rod Serling as a writer is not only his original material, but his ability to adapt other people's work and often improve on it. I think the story and when the sky was opened is superior to the story Disappearing Act by Richard Matheson. And the story for It's a Good Life was laid down well in that short story but Sailing really maximised its potential in his script too. But I feel that here, he perhaps falls down a little on that ending. In the short story, It's a Cookbook, is the last shocking sentence. The perfect sting to end on, knowing that the human race has just sold itself down the river for the promise of some shiny things. And in the original script, Sailing mirrored that too, and he does improve on the short story in that he sets the saying of that line at the foot of a spaceship, which is more dramatic and more visual than it was in the short story where it's just two men sitting in a bar, which was fine in that, but it needed to be something more for the screen. And as well as originally being scripted like the short story, it was also shot like the short story as well and Martin Grams Jr. details how it originally ended in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. And he says, The original cut ended abruptly as Pat shouts, To save man, it's a cookbook. And for a moment Chambers looked stunned, a zoom into a close-up of his face as the horror takes hold. Slowly a huge hand comes into the frame to touch Chambers' cheek, pinches it lightly as if feeling for tenderness. Then the hand gently, but very firmly, turns Chambers around and propels him up the stairs as they slowly close. During the process of this closing, we hear Sailing's voice in closing narration. The very explicit and very specific differences in points of view. To the wee ones, the little folk called man. It's a marvellous adventure, a voyage to another planet, an exciting sojourn, in another section of the galaxy, but to the very large granite-faced inhabitants known as Canamits, it's nothing more than a cattle car, a very comfortable provision ship, bringing food from the other end of the universe. Like I say, it's all in the point of view. So instead of that, we get a kind of retooling of it, and then we get this. Please, Mr. Chambers, eat. We wouldn't want you to lose weight. How about you? You still on Earth or on the ship with me? It really doesn't make very much difference because sooner or later, we'll all of us be on the menu. All of us. So I do think this ending shot with Michael Chambers does 
have something to it it is quite chilling in its own way you know they're trying to fatten him up and he turns to us and basically says we're all doomed because we're all on the menu one day but i do think it muddies that great simple use of it's a cookbook which sits on the back of this little linguistic detail that the word serve has a double meaning and it's easy to sit back all these years later and say that they should have used the original ending but the truth is that in the original cut, they did, but it was Rod Sailing who wasn't happy with it. And Sailing wrote to Damon Knight and he said, To serve man turned out piss poor. A combination of horrible direction and a faithless script bit your back. We're reshooting some scenes and it's my hope that we can at least come within a few hundred yards of your great story. So the ending was retooled, some scenes were taken out, and director James Sheldon was brought in to direct a conference room scene. Lloyd Bochner then recorded his narrations. Now I'm not entirely sure whether this was a completely new thing for, for the new cut, but considering that they are latched on to those framing sequences so much, it would suggest that the narrations weren't initially there. So they did retool it and the episode was released. And Damon Knight wrote to Rod Serling and he said, you've made me a big man around here and I would hate to try to estimate what your trendex was in Milford the night you did to save man. My kids thought there ought to have been more to the story, but I thought it was a dandy show. I loved your monster and I treasure your line, dust to desert. I hear the series has not been renewed, which is a great pity if true, but I trust you are busy and happy. May your tribe increase. And Rod Sailing replied, I'm not at all sure we did justice to your exceptional story, but the effort was there, and the try was a manly one. Actually, the reactions to the show have been quite incredible. The mail pull for our show anyway has been quite phenomenal, and the word of mouth unusually positive and extensive. Actually, I think I piddled around with the UN too much and was unable to sustain this properly with legitimate production values. If we'd done this as a motion picture and had a few more dollar bills accessible, it could have been dressed up far more handsomely. Apologise to your kids for me and explain to them what are the pitfalls of novice science fiction writers who run their ham fists all over the works of the legitimate ones. I hope we have a chance to do it again. So we could go back and forth about what might have been and what should have been, but in the end, does it really matter? As I said earlier, the Kanemit is one of the most iconic images of the show. The final line has taken on a life of its own too. I do feel when you stack it up against the short story that the episode does feel a bit choppy and I have come across criticisms of it that it pretty much lives or dies on the ending. And once you know what it is, there's really not much to the actual body of the story itself. I wouldn't completely agree with that. I think even with the fact that it has clearly been retooled, the pleasure of To Save Man for me comes from seeing this antidote to the multitude of flying saucer movies that would have preceded it. This was an invasion through kindness. There are no ray guns, but through the use of that stock footage and the alien makeup, 
it still has this wonderful 1950s flying saucer B-movie vibe about it. And I think it survives this very well-known twist being so ingrained in us by just being a good yarn. You know, sometimes a friend will tell the same story over and over again. And although you know how it ends, it's the pleasure of the telling that always brings you back to listen to it. It's hard to identify whether it's really trying to tell us anything, but that's also part of the pleasure of it for me too, because it is so much the opposite of a typical sailing script in many ways. In this case, the naysayers are right. The ones who mistrust the outsiders who come to our home were right to mistrust them. So this is completely at odds with sailing, who was so inclusive and did often speak of mankind's irrational hatred of the other. But this time, the mistrust of the other was justified. But that's okay because sailing didn't adapt this story to save mankind. He adapted it to save the story. Not everything he did gave us life lessons. Sometimes he just wanted to freak us out. The recollections of one Michael Chambers with appropriate flashbacks and soliloquy. Or more simply stated, the evolution of man. The cycle of going from dust to dessert. The metamorphosis from being the ruler of a planet to an ingredient in someone's soup. It's tonight's Bill of Fare from the Twilight Zone. Okay, so there is another Twilight Zone under our belt. And it's uh, one of the big ones. So let's get to some listener emails in submitted for your approval. Okay, it has been a while since we've had a episode review we did the reading of to save man but before that it'd been a while so the emails have built up a bit i am going to miss some of them out and i might chop a few down but uh, i hope you don't mind but it's just to kind of keep things to a reasonable length so let's start with our old friend andrew schneider and he says hi tom i watched the last rites of jeff Metalbank and to save man last night this was my first viewing of Metalbank. I was familiar with the story primarily from Zikri's review in the Twilight Zone Companion. My impression from his review, which admittedly I read many years ago, was that this was a creepy story of a man who came back from the dead, whose body may have been hijacked by an evil spirit. Having listened to your review Halloween morning, however, I was primed to look at this as something more complex. My own takeaway was that this was neither a country comedy nor a ghost story. I'm not sure I buy the argument that it was about racism either, although I can see elements of the story that might support that view. Orgrim's remark to comfort that he bets here and Jeff's children will have horns plays into a common, ugly, anti-Semitic caricature. I doubt I would have thought of it though had it not been for the comment on your podcast and the horrific mass shooting at Pittsburgh Tree of Life Synagogue. The idea of the townspeople treating Jeff as an outsider because his behaviour has changed is credible enough without a metaphor of racism. He is a man who has literally been given a second chance at life. Like many others who have been so gifted, 
He's resolved not to waste the opportunity. He changes his ways for the better. He eats healthier. He works harder. He becomes more curious about the world around him, tinkering with things. But there are plenty of people who are uncomfortable with anyone around them who tries to better themselves, thinking it reflects poorly on them. Who does this person think he is, acting as if he's better than us? And so they resolve to cast him out. Admittedly, the dead roses and the self-lighting match don't really fit into this scenario, but then neither does someone coming back to life after being dead for three days. Incidentally, one would think that someone rising from the dead after three days in a church no less might lead true Christians to consider other explanations than that of demonic possession. To serve man is an old favourite of mine. I read the Damon Knight story when I was in first or second grade, years before I watched my first episode of The Twilight Zone on television. While this story is anything but a comedy, Rod Sailing's teleplay illustrates again that humour was not his strong suit. Knight's story ends with the famous line, it's a cookbook, a brilliant twist ending that hinges on a ghastly pun. It would have been a perfect ending to a TZ episode, just as Knight wrote it. Instead, Sailing steps on the punchline by framing the episode in a flashback, giving viewers reason to suspect the Canemit's motives from the beginning. All that said, I still love this episode and never get tired of watching it. Keep up the good work, all the best, Andrew. Good thoughts, Andrew. I'm going to not comment on any of that for now for a particular reason, so uh, bear with me, we'll come back to that. Thanks very much for writing in as ever. Okay, another friend of the show, Stephen, writes in about Jeff Metalbank and he says, Hi Tom, to any American watching this episode, it's obvious from the title that it's a comedy. The name Metalbank is funny. Any doubts are laid to rest in the opening scene. Maybe Metalbank isn't funny to a British ear. Okay, Stephen, listen. This is the island that gave birth to Benedict Cumberbatch, so I think all bets are off with that one. And he goes on to say, however, this Twilight Zone episode differs from other comedies. It says something serious about society. You mentioned one interesting possibility, racism. Jeff becomes an outsider in his community, just like minorities are outsiders. But I don't think that's the message because Jeff's own family fears and shuns him too. I think the message is mob mentality. There are other Twilight Zone episodes that deal with mobs, such as The Monsters of Dew on Maple Street. In American literature, there is a classic Western novel called The Oxbow Incident that is required reading for students, and it's about mob mentality. Of course, racism and mob mentality are closely associated. In this episode, the mob that turns against Jeff is his own community and family. How people respond to fear is a common theme in the Twilight Zone. Even today, much of what passes for politics is fear-mongering with some politicians encouraging mob mentality, getting each side to believe that the other side will destroy the world. The polite euphemism for it is polarization. Since this episode is a comedy, it must have a happy ending. In the end, Jeff's community and family accept him, but there's a neat little twist. They accept him because they fear what he might do if they shun him. That reminds me of Bill Moomy in It's a Good Life, but it's okay because we know that Jeff isn't going to send anyone to the cornfield. And that is from our old friend Stephen. So again, a different view on that, and I'm not going to comment on it, Stephen. 
for a very particular reason, and I'll come to that in a sec, so thanks for writing in as ever. Okay, so the reason I'm not really commenting on that is because of a particular email that I received. Now, as we see there, we have a couple of people who listened to my thoughts on Jeff Myrtlebank and had a different opinion, which is fine. And as regular listeners will know, it's something that I've always welcomed because I don't put myself out here as an expert on the Twilight Zone. I do my research, I gather my thoughts on an episode and I put it out there. And then the friends of the show will often say, you know what, thanks for the show, but here's my interpretation. And that's always been a kind of pleasure of the show for me. Now, believe it or not, even though most listeners conduct themselves in that way and they can disagree, but still present themselves in a positive manner, unfortunately, doing something like this, you do attract some negativity. Now, I tend to ignore it because if you get too caught up in that, you end up just kind of swimming in that cesspool uh, of kind of negativity with which, in which these people tend to live their lives. And it ends up not being really a productive debate or anything like that. You're just kind of throwing stones at each other, if you like. But... I received this email and I'm going to address it for a very specific reason, which I'll get to in a moment. And it's from, and it's from someone called Dan. And he says, Tom, I was disappointed to hear you struggle to infuse racism into this episode, meaning Jeff Metalbank. Some science fiction is just meant to entertain. A man died, came back to life and scared the townsfolk. That's it. And for some reason you felt it necessary to interject race into the story that really ruined the podcast for me. I'll not be listening anymore. The Twilight Zone is supposed to be fantasy entertainment. The real world misery you try to connect to it is neither fantasy nor entertaining. Basically, you just pushed it too hard this time. And I'm not interested in having another beloved episode ruined by what I suspect to be a political agenda. Good day, sir. So let's break this down a little. Dan says, I was disappointed to hear you struggle to infuse racism into this episode. Some science fiction is just meant to entertain. So let me make something clear to you, Dan, which I think would have been quite clear to you had you listened to the episode properly. I didn't struggle to infuse racism into this episode at all. Now, when I review an episode of The Twilight Zone, I try and make it go beyond just me reviewing the episode. Now sometimes, as was the case with the one we talked about tonight, there's a lot of trivia that I can bring to it, and that will be the extra thing that I bring to it. But in the case of Jeff Metalbank, there wasn't much trivia to it, so in those cases I will try and find some kind of angle on it, or maybe some little side story that I can focus on. So it's not just a basic review of the episode and there's a bit more to it. So like I said, in the case of Myrtlebank there wasn't much trivia, but when I was searching around for anything interesting to bring to it, I did notice that several people have this interpretation of the Myrtlebank episode. So it wasn't my interpretation, but in the absence of anything else to really latch onto with this one, I thought that because several people have brought it up, why not examine that? So this wasn't me struggling to infuse anything. 
This was me reacting to an interpretation that is already out there in the public domain. So Dan goes on to say, a man died, came back to life and scared the townsfolk, that's it. And for some reason you felt it necessary to interject race into the story. That really ruined the podcast for me. I'll not be listening anymore. The Twilight Zone is supposed to be fantasy entertainment. The real world misery you tried to connect to it is neither fantasy nor entertaining. So what I will say is this, Dan. If you feel that the Twilight Zone is just fantasy entertainment, then you don't understand the Twilight Zone. And that's not me and you having a difference of opinion about the show. That's just you being wrong. So, the monsters are due on Maple Street, Sailing specifically mentions prejudice in his narration. But to you, it's just about some neighbours having an argument. Death's Head Revisited, He's Alive, two episodes that are literally about how bad Nazis are. And you say, the Twilight Zone is just fantasy entertainment. The Big Tall Wish, Rod Sailing making a gesture to rebalance the underrepresentation of black people on television by casting an episode completely with black people. And this isn't saying anything to you. You know, that's just a few of them. The list goes on and on. And anyone even with the most rudimentary knowledge of the evolution of the Twilight Zone knows that it was Rod Serling slipping social commentary under the radar under the guise of science fiction and fantasy. If they taught Twilight Zone history in school, that would be a day one lesson. That would be basics. But to you, it's just a science fiction and fantasy show. Now, this particular episode wasn't written by Rod Salem, but it was written by Monty Pittman. And in the episode, I asked the question, well, if this is how people interpret it, is this Monty Pittman, who I do think understood what the Twilight Zone was about, unlike you, trying to hide something in plain sight, the way Sailing often did. Now, I didn't come to the definite conclusion that Metal Bank was about racism. In fact, I'd probably go with more Stephen's conclusion that it's about mob mentality. And that's why I never say in the episode that I completely subscribe to that view, and I leave it for the audience to decide. And I even go so far as to say that sometimes, if you look hard enough for something, you can end up projecting that thing onto whatever it is you're looking at. So I very much left it up to the listener, and in the end, I think my commentary on the show was actually more a comment on, is that looking too much into the Twilight Zone or not? And again, I left it up to the listener to decide. And I think it says a lot about people the way they interpret my interpretation of that show. So I don't think that this is about me trying to force an interpretation onto the episode. I think that perhaps you really didn't understand what I was talking about because you seem to be latching on to that aspect of it. And I think your next comment speaks volumes. You said, basically you just pushed it too hard this time and I'm not interested in having another beloved episode ruined by what I suspect to be a political agenda. Now, Dan, you seem to be one of those people who probably says their childhood was ruined when they made a Lady Ghostbusters movie because it's a pretty fragile existence if the things you love are ruined because people say things about them 
that you disagree with. Now sometimes people will write to me and they will include comments about things like Donald Trump and Brexit and so on and if it's pretty heavy stuff then I won't read them out but if it's part of an overall group of comments about the episode then I'll just leave them in. But if you'd been listening hard enough you'd notice that I never comment on these things. I never pick up on those comments and put my own two cents in there because you know what, aren't we all just a bit sick of it? You know, isn't it nice to be able to have a place away from all that because it's virtually a constant noise in all aspects of our life at the moment. And there are listeners to this show who I see posting on Twitter who do have a very different political view than me or who have very different religious views than me. But I don't put up this barrier in the podcast by making it about my views. The podcast has always been about the Twilight Zone. But as anyone who knows Rod Serling knows, he acknowledges that differences of opinion exist, but he says there still must be dialogue. Now I've chosen not to have this podcast be a place for that dialogue and more an escape from it because I think that's just as important. But what is inescapable, which you probably won't realise because you don't seem to understand things like this, is that Sailing was a very political person and certain aspects of that will inevitably bleed into the Twilight Zone and our examination of it here. So what I will say is I'm not making the Twilight Zone podcast with a political agenda, but what I will say is this, you know, race has become very politicised these days, but to me, it's not a political issue, it's an issue of decency and humanity and just being a decent human being. Now, I won't nail my colours to any political mast here on this show, but I will voice my objections to racism and hate in all its forms. And again, that's not me having a political agenda, that's just me trying to be the best person I can and trying to be a decent human being. Because... You know, this seems to have been a trigger for you, Dan. And, you know, would you have taken the time to send an email to someone who you don't even know if I'd come up with some other interpretation for it? I'd say probably not. And I'd say that your email says a lot more about you than it does about me. What you need to realise is that not everything is made for you. And just because something doesn't fit with your sensibilities, it doesn't mean that it's bad. If you want light-hearted Twilight Zone podcasts, there's plenty of them out there. But I've done this show a particular way from day one. Now, as far as you're not listening to the show again, I really couldn't care less. But I do hope you carry on watching the Twilight Zone and maybe some of that subtext that you claim not to be in there will finally start to sink in. Okay, so that is the last time that I will address such nonsense on this show. If anyone has any issue with the way I present it and I have the utmost respect for my audience and they've always returned that to me but unfortunately you do get the odd bad apple but I'm not going to waste time on things like that anymore I've said my piece so let's get back to a friend of the show Mark and he says um what do you think if what they did with the movie it's a wonderful life by colorizing it to make it more appealing that they did the same to the original Twilight Zone series. Now I know that opinions would differ here, but I myself would like to see a colorized version of the series if they were to do a good job in doing so. Otherwise leave it in black and white if they couldn't match it with a good colorized version. What are your views on that, Tom? 
thanks and that's from mark well again you know this is something that people will probably get um quite emotionally involved in i mean heaven forbid you pose that question to dan i think he'd probably be threatening your family by now it's not something that i particularly need i think if they did it with one episode i'd be quite interested to see it just out of curiosity but i don't think if they did it for a whole series it would really become part of my twilight zone rotation um i'm sure there was a website once that used to post colorized images of the twilight zone and it is quite interesting to see but i think with that original show part of the charm is the black and white but you know if it's something that you would like to see then you know fair play to you maybe someone will do it at some point but thanks for writing in mark okay i've had an email from robert and he says tom catching up with the episodes enjoyed the special eps on sailing and planet of the apes thought that the production touches were brilliant and really helped bring it to life in one's head certainly will be considered when next year's rondo nominations come up well thank you robert i'm glad you enjoyed that it's um certainly one of my favorites i think and he says re-showdown with ranch mcgrew can certainly understand why this show could be considered underwhelming yet still enjoyable although sailing could write amusing and wry material his strength is not straight out comedy as episodes like cavender is coming certainly prove he's much better at smart comedy will the real martian please stand up and satire and I think Showdown is better appreciated as a good satire on American television westerns at the time. While the movie westerns were starting to undergo a change towards a more adult, more realistic presentation, the television westerns took a little longer to get out of the tired, hackneyed formula. Even Sailing himself made an attempt with the series The Loner, which did not enjoy the success of TZ or even Night Gallery. Uh, just as an aside, we discussed the loner on the latest episode of The Fifth Dimension over on Patreon. I agree it would have been interesting to have Rance McGrew confronted by a Jesse James or some similar type of character as portrayed by Lee Marvin or someone of that calibre, but had they gone in that direction, I don't think it would have played as a comedy, or at least the tone would have shifted away from the initial amusing premise into something with darker shadings. Maybe that would have made for a better episode, and actually a good movie, but I have the feeling that direction may have been a little too heavy for the time. Showdown is more aligned with one of the shows that Sailing wrote for the hour-long TZ season, The Bard. Another satire on the workings of television, and similar in tone to Showdown. After all, an afterlife where the dead are still vain enough to be concerned about how they're being portrayed in a fictional construct is a pretty fun idea. Plus the main beef about Rance McGrew is that he's basically a phony. The real Jesse James may not be a phony, but as I see it, in terms of temperament and attitude, he's actually not much better than Rance. He just actually has the machismo. Curious to hear your thoughts regarding Adam Scott in an apparent remake of the Nightmare at 20,000 Feet episode, now upped a few thousand feet to 30,000 I think. It's certainly a way to attract more eyeballs to the platform although it is a bit depressing to know that remakes will apparently be a part of the kickoff of the show. We'll see. Best to you, Robert. Um, good email, Robert. Thank you. You know, I, I mean, I disagree a bit about the Rance McGrew thing. I think that could have worked. Um, like I said in the episode, they'd already showed a tougher 
kind of Western environment in the grave. And I think had it shifted to that with Rand still being this comedic character, I, I think it could have worked, you know. I don't necessarily think it would have had darker shadings, you know, as long as Rance wasn't shot or something, you know, then maybe it would have done, but as long as it it sort of kept to that kind of thing. And I'm not sure the construct of the whole, um, all these real Western guys are up in heaven looking down, um, uh, concerned about how they're being portrayed on television, worked for me as well. I think it would have worked for me better if it was just a straight-up time shift, you know, but... Anyway, great thoughts, man. Great thoughts. Okay. Uh, hopefully you will have heard the episode about uh, Nightmare at 30,000 Feet that I did with Zach. So you'll know my thoughts on that for now. Interestingly, though, when I posted that episode, someone from Monkey's Poor Productions tweeted back after I posted that link. And he said, honestly, guys, it's not a remake. So... Think of that what you will. I, uh, you know, didn't get really any further on any clarity of what that actually means, but it could be that, really speaking, the name is just a kind of tribute to the original show, but the story isn't actually the same. But I guess time will tell. It's nice to see that things are starting to move over there. Filming's began, so things are really underway. We just need some kind of uh, service over here in England to pick it up otherwise that might prove a little difficult okay well thank you Robert okay I'm going to finish up with some comments from uh, another good old friend of the show Uncommon NASA and he has some thoughts about Earl Hamner Jr so take it away NASA hey Tom it's Uncommon NASA wanted to send you a little bit about how I felt about Earl Hamner Jr's episodes in season 3 uh, they're definitely two of my favorite episodes uh, of season three, and Hunt is one of my favorite episodes of the entire series. So just wanted to give you a little bit of feedback uh, from the other side of some of the criticism that those two episodes got. You know, as far as like Mark Scott Zickery's comments go uh, with the Hunt, I, I don't know. I, I just, I, I can't really buy into like there being an issue with the casting. Arthur Honeycutt and Jeanette Nolan were really good as a loving couple. I really didn't even realize they were playing older until just now when I looked up their names uh, to record this for you. So I think they were really convincing and their love between each other was really genuine too. Um, I've never seen Green Acres. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of interest in seeing it. It's not really my thing. Um, but I would imagine that it's kind of unfair to compare something that Earl Hamner Jr. did later to something he did previously. It just seems out of sort like to do that. And I don't really think that this episode needs to be like green acres um so casting the guy who was in green acres it, it just doesn't really add up to me for me like this was a ghost story and it was also a really humanistic story um you know to get a little bit dark for a second i've actually told people that if uh and when i should pass away i would like this episode played at my funeral because it really is like a story of love and it's bond that continues into the afterlife um, you know, I really take that to heart, the, the fact that love kind of keeps people together even after they pass away and unites them forever. That's super powerful to me. And, um, you know, it, it, to me, it's the most emotionally penetrating episode in all five seasons, at least for me personally. And I think the casting and the writing, 
obviously has a lot to do with that. Um, I think Arthur Honeycutt gave one of the best performances in all five seasons in this episode. But one thing I would say in terms of like understanding Mark Scott Zickery's opinions is I didn't realize until I heard the interview that you had recorded at like one of the cons how young he was when you wrote that book. So I'm wondering if this is like a really good example of, you know, while, you know, it's really respected to to be able to to do something like the Twilight Zone Companion at such a young age and get it published, you know, if some of the editorial parts of that book would have changed had, you know, he had done it later in life, because I think this is a really like strong life experience sort of episode. For me, it's a top 10 episode. I have never done a top 10 of Twilight Zone episodes because I'd be afraid to. My opinions change all the time on which ones I like and which ones I love and all that kind of stuff. But for me, it's a staple episode. Um, in terms of like Piano in the House, I think this episode's a lot of fun. I mean, I know that that's weird because it's so dark, but I think the audience is really intended to laugh at Barry Morris's performance as Fitzgerald Fortune. Um, I don't think you're supposed to be laughing with him. And I think the fact that his name is Fitzgerald Fortune is sort of like the nod that this is going to be tongue-in-cheek and this is going to be dark comedy. Um, the characters from the very beginning, I think, kind of lay this out. So with that in mind, I don't really mind the fact that some of the mechanics don't make sense or aren't scientific or what have you because I, I kind of feel like I'm already in on the joke. You know, this is something that's made to look like drama or look like thriller but it's actually dark comedy and i think for that reason it, it doesn't matter how it works i think the silence from season two is a similar episode i mean you know if you look at it you know if you look at it realistically like who throws a party and then sets up chairs like in auditorium style seating you know i mean it, obviously this is all sort of just a fable and i kind of love twilight zone episodes that are fabulistic like that and in terms of like the way that Muriel Sanders' character Marge was treated insensitively or rudely, or maybe, you know, if this episode was made today, it would have been done differently. I mean, I might be naive, but I always thought her character was trying to show the audience that a woman with her figure could be pretty and could be the life of the party, and that her doubts were unreasoned, and that, you know, even when I was watching this as a younger person, I, 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 I was caught up with the thought of, like, why is she so caught up in appearance? She's doing just fine. Like, what's what's wrong with her? You know, and I, or what's wrong with society for making her feel that way, rather? You know, so I, I always felt like she was a sympathetic character, and, and that was the whole point, and that was why she was so done up and why she was such the life of the party, was to kind of show you that even though she didn't believe it herself, she was doing fine and nobody really cared about the things that she thought they cared about. Honestly, like these two episodes in a vacuum, you know, without considering anything else Earl Hamner Jr. did in future seasons, to me, it puts him like within the core four of the writers. Uh, I think these are two amazing episodes. I wish that the rest of the episodes that Hamner Jr. did in the future were not such a mixed bag. Um, obviously, some of the episodes he did in season five and uh i think it's season four as well uh some of them are universally panned as some of the worst episodes uh some of them are kind of okay uh but in my opinion none of them and there's maybe about another six or so touch these two um i think the hunt like i said is an all-timer that's hanging in the rafters and uh piano in the house is a great episode i could sit and watch it all day i just think the performances 
and all the like little tongue-in-cheek stuff with the with the butler and I, I think all that stuff is funny it's just weird comedy and like Twilight Zone didn't do comedy very well and in this episode maybe it was unintentional who knows but to me I, I found it funnier than anything that was deliberately written to be comedy on the series so that's my two cents on two episodes thanks for hearing me out here Tom and uh, we'll talk soon Okay, thank you, NASA. Some really interesting thoughts there. I always like it when people send in clips as well. I think it's a really nice way of getting that feedback in and adding a bit of colour to the show. But, um, you know, good thoughts. Hamner is, I guess, a much maligned Twilight Zone writer. And I think when his run started, I I really tried to um, distance myself from that negativity and approach it fresh and you know fair play I, I think the hunter is a really good episode piano in the house i don't think i dislike it as much as a lot of people do um it's more of a middling episode for me i'm i'm not really 100 percent on board with your interpretation of it but but i guess the theme of this feedback section uh this episode is that you know what, we all have these different interpretations and why not, as long as we can all conduct ourselves with a modicum of decorum, then that's great, you know, it is one of the pleasures of the Twilight Zone, so thanks for writing in that, sir. Okay, so that is our feedback section. If you want to get some thoughts onto the show, then email me at tom at thetwilightzonepodcast.com and get your thoughts on the show. Just a few thank yous before I go, and I want to welcome new patrons. And like I've said in the past, when someone becomes a patron, then they kind of become a sponsor of one episode of the Twilight Zone podcast. And this time we have Kristen Sullivan, who's become the executive producer of A Passage for Trumpet, Whitney Beeler, who is the executive producer of the Nightmare as a Child episode, Brian Griffin, his is A Piano in the House, and then Daryl Schwant and his episode is the Nicholas Parisi interview. And I also want to say thank you to a longtime friend of the show and a fellow podcaster. He does the Outer Limits podcast, which you can find on the thetwilightzonepodcast.com. And he's already a patron, but just out of the goodness of his heart, because he knows I'm saving up for my um, Binghamton trip next year, he sent in a, a cash contribution through PayPal uh, from the link on the website uh, towards that trip. And it, again, it's much more than I ever expected from anyone. And I'm really humble and grateful uh, for Victor doing that. So thank you so much, man. You know, it, it really means a lot. You're a big hearted guy and I really appreciate that. And everyone check out the Outer Limits podcast. He's doing great work over there. And if you want to contribute to the show like these guys have, then please go to patreon.com slash twilightzonepodcast. And on it, I have recently launched Lawgiver, my Planet of the Apes podcast. Now, that's going to be just on Patreon for now, no matter what your level of donation, because the Twilight Zone podcast is still my main focus, but it was just something that was burning away at me that I really wanted to get going. So I'm going to get it going in baby steps, you know, just do an episode every few months and eventually it will go onto iTunes and so on. 
but uh, the patrons will get it first because I can just put the odd episode on there. I think if I put it out on iTunes at the moment, then it just doesn't look good when uh, I put an episode out and then there might not be another episode for four months or something. So I'm going to build up a few episodes in Patreon and then maybe later on in 2019, I will put it into iTunes once there's a few episodes built up. But how that works, I will get to in the future. But yeah, so if you want to get that, then please head over to Patreon and sign up there and that'll become part of the package. So we are in December, it's almost Christmas and... Does that mean we will get another episode of the Twilight Zone podcast out before it? I've got to admit, it's been a really busy couple of months in the non-Twilight Zone world, uh, just in regular life. So episodes have slowed down a little bit. I expect that to change hopefully in the new year. But in the meantime, I will start work on the next episode, but I'm not 100% sure I'm going to get that out before Christmas so just in case I don't I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas Happy Holidays whatever you do then I hope it's wonderful and I hope you have a great time but you never know I might just get it out before then so we will see so let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what that episode is going to be and now Mr. Serling next week on the Twilight Zone contributor Charles Beaumont provides us with the most charming tale of an old man and some children An old man who's an exceptional playmate. Exceptional because, well, how many old men do you know who can change into monsters? Mr. Beaumont's excellent tasting stew is further seasoned by an element of mystery. It's called The Fugitive. We hope to see you next week. It's only a short hop from the Twilight Zone to Dodge City and Gunsmoke. Saturday nights over most of these stations.